The significance of the passage that we've got before us, why I'm looking at this this evening. This is, a, in one sense, a very personal thing. Normally, we look through, if you're a visitor here, normally what we do is we look through a book of the Bible. In the evenings, we've been looking through uh, Revelation, and in the mornings, Colossians. Um, and, but what I'm doing this evening is a kind of one-off. I'm looking at Isaiah 61 for a very special reason because of uh, some of the developments and things that have been occurring in the church here. Now, we don't often talk a great deal about the church here, but I think it's important. Even more important because we had a meeting a couple of weeks ago, the deacons and the diaconal assistants and the elders, and uh, Colin asked a great question. He said, why are we doing this? We were talking about the building. Why are we doing it? And for me, it's actually the key question, not what are we doing, but why are we doing it? And we discussed that for a while, and Colin, who's very wise, said to me, you should tell the congregation. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, but I'm looking at this, so basically blame Colin. If you wanted revelation tonight, just have a word with Colin. Uh, I listened to my elders. And I think, but I think the question was right. I think that it is hugely important to think about. The significance of this particular passage is very straightforward. <clears throat> Again, perhaps for those of you who do not know, this is a famous church in Christian circles because it's the church of a man called Robert Murray McShane. And we get hundreds of visitors every year who come to visit this church. It's the nearest thing that Protestants have to a shrine. And they come and they get photographed in the pulpits and genuflect and so on. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a, a fascinating historical building. Well, when McShane was here between the years of 1836 and 1843, he died young. He died aged 29. Every year on the anniversary of his ordination, he preached from this passage, Isaiah 61. Didn't preach the same sermon, but he always preached from the same passage because he considered this to be his great commission to preach the gospel. That's one reason for <coughs> using this passage when we're talking about that. Another is, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 4 and to verse 14, someone much greater than McShane. Luke chapter 4 and verse 14. We read this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as it was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What an absolutely brilliant way to begin a sermon. I can guarantee you that had their attention right from the very beginning. Isaiah 61 was the passage used that Jesus, or by Jesus to say, This is my ministry. This is what I am here for. Or if you turn to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 5, we read, <coughs> let's in fact read from verse 4, when this was, as Brian was looking at this morning about John the Baptist. In Matthew 11 and verse 4, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those of leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. The significance of Isaiah 61 is that this is the message of Jesus Christ. It was the message of the early church, and it was the message of the church in Scotland when it was in its better days. I want, before we actually look at the passage, we are going to do that, but I do want to set it in a context of, or the context of where we are and what happened in this place. And please do bear with us. I know that for some people, history is a really bad thing, but to me, it's just the story of what God has done. And some of you will know what God did in this place, and others will not know. I want to read or tell you just a little bit about what occurred in this building, and in fact, in uh, the pews where you are sitting. You just have a look around this building, and you see it and uh, it's, almost, it's, it's almost incredible for me to believe that this actually happened. When McShane came here in 1836, and things went fairly well, the church was growing and so on, all around this area here, this was actually the poor area of town. Right? If you, could, you could invest in property here, and you'd be doing really well, because little would you know that kind of a couple of hundred years later, it's going to be worth a fortune. But Anyway, this was the, the, the poor area, and especially where the car park is, that's all been knocked down, and the Hawk Hill, and so on. Once being experienced a, a great revival across the West in, in Glasgow when he was at a communion in Kilsyth. <coughs> and he returned here, and he told the people about it, and there was just a tremendous amount, tre- tremendous blessing that happened. Every night, now, we, we're in a situation where we think we're doing really well if we manage to get to church once or twice in a week. You know, you come in the morning, it's fine. Come in the evening, it's good. But what happened there was people were coming here every single night. You couldn't stop them. The place was absolutely packed. And they were coming from all around. There were 40 pubs in St. Peter's Parish. 40, not four, but 40. And lots and lots of people were even coming from the pubs and coming in. And they were packing upstairs and, and packing in here as well as people preached the Bible. The Dundee, Perth, and Cooper Advertiser, it was called then. It's now called The Courier. It was obstreperous and anti-Christian then as it is now. And, sorry for any reports from The Courier, but it's true. Uh, it said this, The revival in St. Peter's is attracting more attention at a distance than it is doing in Dundee. With the exception of public worship almost every night of the week and continued to a very late hour, and attended by overflowing audiences, little occurs to excite curiosity or remark. Now, the courier was being a, wit, a bit snippy, but it was saying, apart from the fact that the church is packed, apart from the fact they hold worship every night, apart from the fact that they go on to midnight, there's nothing unusual happening in Dundee. I would love that. I would, I would love to have that situation today. The Times and the Scotsman reported on the revival here, and they took a few swipes, and again, nothing new. They took a few swipes of what was was going on. Now, McShane returned on Thursday, the 23rd of November, 1839. I want you to imagine this. He he came in to the docks, and he came off off the ship, and he was taken with a couple of the elders up to his house in Strawberry Bank, and then immediately in the evening, he came up into the church here, and he walked in the door, and he described it. He said that there were 1,200 people crammed into this church on a Thursday night waiting to hear the Word of God. 
And he was so excited about this, he wrote to his parents, please bear with me as I quote this to you. He said, the singing of the first psalm seemed particularly hearty and full. I'll bet you it was. The singing used to be really dead. He used to lament about the singing. He used to say, oh, it's dreadful. And he tried to teach people to sing. Um, because unlike me, he was actually an extremely good singer. He was very artistic as well. And he, uh, but he, in, on that particular occasion, well, with 1,200 people, the children, by the way, boys and girls, if you see that stairway, it kind of like that, that pulpit was back up against there. There wasn't an organ in those days. And uh, that pulpit was back up there. And there was a stairway. And the children were all the way up to the stairway. He had to ask them to get out the way so that he could get up to the pulpit. Um, because it was figured, children don't need to sit on pews. You can sit wherever you want. Now you come in the morning, you go and climb up there and you get a row. But in those days, it, was, it seemed as though it was a, uh, a great thing to do. And this is what he wrote to his mum and his dad. He said this, I never saw such an assembly in a church before. Mr. Roxburgh, Mr. Arnott, Mr. Hamilton, Mr. Law, and other ministers came to support me. There was not a spot in the church left unoccupied. Every passage and stair were filled. I was almost overwhelmed by the sight, but felt great liberty in preaching. I never before preached to such an audience, so many weeping, so many waiting for the words of eternal life. Can you imagine that? The stairways out there, those big stairways crammed with people who couldn't see, but in every passageway crammed with people, all the way down the doors, people in the vestry, here to hear the word of God. I think it's an extraordinary picture, an extraordinary image. And please don't think this was rent-a-crowd from all the churches. This was people from all around. I've got a, a lovely letter from a barmaid in one of the pubs who wrote, we came to St. Peter's to see Mr. C.B. They never called him the first names in letters. They always put their uh, Chalmers Burns to hear him. We heard he was driving everyone mad. And she describes how she went up into the balcony up there and she came to laugh, you know, to have a joke about all the holy joes and all that kind of stuff. And when she heard about Jesus, everything changed for her. Well, it was uh, an extraordinary time. On the 19th of January, 1840, they had a communion here. McShane said, the happiest and holiest I was ever at. Six tables. What that means is they, had, they repeated the communion service six times. And the service, and for those of you who are tempted sometimes... You know, when the service goes on past quarter past 12, which it usually does in the morning, there's one or two kind of, we got to get home for my dinner and all that kind of stuff. Well, listen to this. The service started at 10 and finished at 5. So when revival comes, you'll not be saying quarter past 12. He wrote this. There was a sense of God's power and present. The people were reluctant to leave. In fact, they refused to leave. And at 5 o'clock when the service finished, they went through to the hall, and long before we ever did, they had a congregational fellowship where they just went to sing. And I think that that itself is extraordinary, but even more extraordinary than this. When McShane left to go to Israel, <coughs> there were five prayer meetings in the whole congregation. When he came back, there were 39, five of which were conducted by little children. There's one boy called Alexander Lane, 15 years old, who was converted and he held a prayer meeting in his home on Monday and Saturday evenings. Now, this is what this boy did. He asked each of his friends who came uh, to pray, to pray out loud. And if they couldn't pray out loud or didn't want to, they were asked to say the Lord's Prayer. And then there was some singing and reading of the Bible. 
You say, well, that's a 15-year-old. Well, there was another boy, uh, another girl actually, called Margaret Sim, who lived in the Hawk Hill, just up there. She was 12 years old, and she had a prayer meeting of her friends, 10, 11, and 12-year-olds. And they met uh, for prayer and for praise. But it wasn't just the young. Andrew Kant and James Payton led a meeting for the elderly in a house in Tate's Lane, down there, at 7 o'clock on a Sunday evening, for praise, prayer, and mutual edification, as they called it. Other groups met for prayer on the Sunday. Again, let me quote what McShane said. When Burns came, revival broke out in Dundee also. When I came home, there was a change in the Christians. They were so much more devoted and anxious to hear, full of love and delight in prayer. I left four meetings for prayer. Sorry, I said five. Now there are 39. Five of those are of little children. The number of little children saved is quite remarkable. Many noted sinners are saved, several whole families. There is a tension in hearing of the word. I love this phrase, once I wearied them, now they weary me. There is delight in prayer. They pray for me. It's quite different now to preach them. I feel quite strengthened by it. Now, you can't, we don't have shrines. But I, I honestly, if, if you can't feel something in the sense of saying, this actually went on here, not somewhere else. This went on in this place and occurred in this building and occurred in these pews, that there was this tremendous blessing of God. Well, what went wrong? Because obviously something has gone wrong. It's not that long ago that this occurred. By definition, of course, revival always ends. You, you don't have permanent revival. Even the day of Pentecost ended. But the effects are felt for a long time. There was a church plant from this church. If you go out the door and go up the, the street, McShane Memorial Church, I have a ticket for when that was opened in 1870. In fact, it's a good idea for the buildings group when you're thinking about fundraising because on that ticket it says, the service will be conducted by Mr. C.H. Spurgeon, Baptist minister from London. Charles Haddon Spurgeon conducted the uh, the meeting. You had to have a ticket to go to it. And it said, as there is still a great debt owed on the building, we hope that the collection will be liberal. That was on, on the ticket. I thought it was just a, a, a great way of fundraising. But this church was so full. And for those of you who know your Dundee history, by the way, one of the first members was William McGonagall. Um, that's another claim to fame that not many people know about. But that they planted the church, McShane Memorial. Now, in the year 2000, McShane Memorial and St. Peter's had amalgamated together, and that amalgamation itself collapsed, and McShane Memorial was sold, actually ended up being sold to a Muslim businessman. You had two churches that were packed to the door in this area, which within a hundred years, which is not that long a time, both were really being, this, was, this building was due to be sold to be turned into flats. Why has that occurred? Why were there more people in this church in one service than there will be in the whole of Dundee tonight? Why, is, why has that happened? Well, prosperity bred pride and complacency. That's one thing. Another thing that happened, this is just a very brief summary, is that the Word of God was undermined by something called the higher critical movement. In other words, the churches were still relatively full at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. The decline really didn't start numerically until the 1950s. 
and accelerated in the 1960s. But the Word of God was undermined so that many people who were teaching it didn't really have confidence in the Word of God. It didn't really seem to matter because the church seemed to be as popular as ever. But what happened was the church lost its radical cutting edge. And you had different responses to that. On the one hand, you did have this kind of liberalism, which said, well, we don't like this in the Bible, we don't like that, so let's cut that out. And in reaction to that, you had a kind of legalism sometimes and a traditionalism. And when in the mid to late 20th century materialism and secularism came in, it just blew the church away. People just disappeared. Do you know here in the 1950s, there were four or 500 people in this church? And yet, by the 1980s, it was being closed because there, was very, there were very few people here. It's because it's not because the people in the church weren't good people. It's not even because the ministers were bad people. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that overall, the church had lost its confidence in the Word of God, and that the ministers had not been trained well. I mean, I'm intrigued with Cornhill and what's going on there. I mean, preaching, who needed preaching anymore, and so on. And it really did kill off the church. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I, but I will anyway. Uh, I'm astounded that this church was amalgamated with McShane Memorial, which eventually that was closed down to, and it was amalgamated with uh, Rose Angle Rye Hill, which was itself an amalgamation. It's now called Dundee West. And I do think of what McShane, McShane would think. I read the newsletter from Dundee West a few months ago, and in that, the minister was denying the atonement as a pagan doctrine. I thought, oh, Hugh's going to speak about the atonement later on. How far have we gone when that happens? So, there is no question at all that there has been a very rapid downward spiral. And that's why in Isaiah 61, when we talk about rebuilding the ancient ruins, there is a ruin that has occurred in this city, and I think throughout Scotland, in terms of the Word of God and the churches. Edward was quite right. There are bright spots in the darkness, but overall, the situation is pretty catastrophic. 1.2 million people were members of the Church of Scotland in the mid-1950s. That is now down to about 500,000. Basically, within a couple of generations, you could even argue within one generation. How do we build, uh, rebuild, and restore well, I want us to think about that in terms of perhaps the wider church, but particularly in terms of St. Peter's. And I want to do it in um, three ways. I'll do it very uh, briefly for two of them. The third one will be maybe a little bit longer. Um, in terms of Dundee, we talk about, people say the old cliche, Dundee, jute, jam, and journalism. And I told some of you that I'd, before I'd read in the evening news that some journalists were saying, Dundee is the city of the four J's. Jute Jam Journalism and Jesus. I'd never heard that one before, and he was mocking. He wasn't boasting. And I thought, wouldn't that be wonderful? Never mind the Jute. And keep the jam. That's good. Uh, journalism, okay. Um, but Jesus, that'd be fantastic if Dundee was known as the city of Jesus. I think, in a way, when we think about the gospel, it's actually a good way to think of the gospel in those terms. Jute was uh, about providing shelter and about providing clothing, about providing people's basic needs. And I think the gospel is, is coming and bringing people their basic needs, uh, and particularly, of course, spiritually. Jam 
I was thinking about the jam and thinking about the sweetness of the jam and so on, but then I was also thinking about the jam club that, that's running Park Place Primary that so many of our own folks are involved in, and, and scripture unions hold jam stuff, and, and I think, yeah, that's, that's exactly what people need is the sweetness of the gospel. The journalism, journalism is meant to be about news, and we have great news to tell people. So that's part of what we're about. I think another way of thinking about revival and restoration here is to think in terms uh, of the building and what the um, architects said to us. When they came in and looked at the building, they said, we love the building, they said, but we identify certain problems. One, they said, was connections. You've got different bits in the building, and they're not really connected all that well, so you need to connect a bit better. The other, they said, is you're quite cluttered. You've got bits and pieces here, there, and everywhere. And that's fairly true. You know, we've got a pulpit there, and we've got a piano down there, and a dead organ over there, and, and you know, we're, we're cluttered. He said, get rid of the clutter, the way that it's all. Little bits are added on piece by piece. And then they said, you're dark, you know, and you've got this horrendous lighting, which is true. I mean, it looks, I mean, from your perspective, I, I must look like something like a Frankenstein movie all the time with an orange light and bouncing off the bold paint. I mean, it's just, you couldn't go upstairs because you'd be horrified if you were looking down with that kind of light. And part of the problem is the, the, the actual lighting itself, but the windows were a south-facing building. And if you come here in the morning when it's sun shining and so on, it can still be really dark in here. And so they pointed that out. They said, you need some light. Let the light in. And I thought about those things that the architects had said, and I thought, you know, that's a great picture for the gospel as well. Because we do need to connect. We need to make sure we connect with one another. We need to make, to make sure that we connect with the community around. Robert Rayham, who um, is here with us, for those of you who don't know, he's an American missionary who works with us. He was telling me this week of one of the things that saddened him about going back to Jackson, Mississippi, where he's from, is the number of gated communities that are springing up. These are communities inverted comma communities, where people have houses, nice houses, and the swimming pool, and the shopping mall, and the church probably. And they never need to go out of their community. They've got security guards. No one can get in, and they don't really want to get out. They even have offices and workspaces and so on that you can work within these gated communities. And Robert was expressing his horror at that, designed to keep people out and to keep others in. Well, in the church, there's an enormous, an enormous tendency that sometimes we become like a gated community, that we say, you know, there's a narrow entrance, you get in, you've got to behave in a certain way, you've got to look a certain way, you've got to think a certain way, you've got to speak a certain language, and if you don't do that, you're out. And the whole point about the church is perceived in terms even of the building, but certainly in terms of the organization is, how do we keep ourselves in? How do we protect ourselves? How do we keep the bad guys out? That is a fundamental negation of the gospel. But it's a temptation to which we are continually exposed. People like us. It's a phrase, plus. People like us. We only want people in our church who are like us. And sure, you're welcome as long as you change and become like us. Now, to me, that is an absolute disaster. We need, as a church, to be thinking not so much. Brian said it very well this morning, that we're not talking about whether this is about me, 
or elders or the free church or whatever we're talking about. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how do we connect the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people who desperately need to hear that gospel? At the end of the day, God does not judge us as Christians because other people do not believe, but He does judge us as Christians because other people do not hear. People need to hear the good news of the gospel. So we need to connect. The clutter side of it, we need to detox. We get very cluttered in our lives. There are so many extra things, so many different things, and we do that in the church as well. And we sometimes just need to have this kind of detox, radical clear out where you get rid of the minister and all the... No, that wasn't what I was going to say. No, where you, you realize, wait a minute, what are we doing? We've added this, 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 and this. Where did the Bible... We got an invite to our local church, or at least I thought it was an invite. It was a description of all the things that were going on in the church. Everything from origami, railway club, boys' brigades, girl guides, everything. Huge list of organizations. You know, I went through that whole list. There wasn't one prayer meeting or one Bible study. I thought, what are we playing at? Uh, That would be crazy if we ever go down that route. But sometimes well-meaning Christians, you know, we've got to connect with the community, so let's have all these different things. We need to detox sometimes from all that. Let's get back to some basic simplicity in terms of the gospel. And then, of course, the clarity. We need to bring light into ourselves and light uh, to the world. It's a place of darkness, and we need to defeat the forces of darkness by bringing the light. Now, how does that happen? Well, go back to the passage in Isaiah 61, and that's got to be the longest introduction I've ever done, but this will be the shortest sermon I've ever done, okay? Um, Go back to that passage. This is the key thing. The answer to Colin's question about why are we doing this with the building is very simple. It is for the ministry of the Word. It is not about making money. It is not about having a community facility. It is not about say, hey, look at what a wonderful building they've got, what nice people they must be. It is not about history. It's not about having a monument to McShane. It is not about our own personal comfort. It is about the ministry of the Word. And by that, I'm using that in the broadest sense. what What I'm doing just now is the ministry of the Word. But what will happen in the youth fellowship is the ministry of the Word. What happens on on the doors is the ministry of the Word. What happens in the children's club is the ministry of the Word. What happens in one-to-one conversations is the ministry of the Word. It's the ministry of the Word of Jesus. The building is to be used as a tool to bring the Word. Now, this may run countercultural. This is not going to be a multi-purpose building. If you want to play football... Go to a football pitch. It's great. Great idea. Go for it. If you want to drink, go to a place that sells drink. Why why would the church try and compete with that? If you want to go to the cinema, we're not going to put in a mini cinema here so you can watch films for Jesus. That's not what we're going to do. Go to the Odeon. Go to the DCA. We're not trying to create this alternative Christian subculture which will inevitably end up being a gated world to which we invite people in. We are going to have a monopurpose building, and our sole purpose will be this. In this building, our sole purpose is to bring the Word of God and to apply the Word of God. Now, people say, well, you're just talking about a preaching station. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're saying that the 
the great need in our society, the great need in our culture, the great need in Dundee, and the great need in the West End of Dundee, and the great need in the flats across the road is for people to hear the Word of God. And any way that they will hear that Word is what we try to facilitate. I do think that the trouble with a multi-purpose building is that we often end up with a closed community which provides everything for those within. Or sometimes you end up with an open community which forgets the word of Jesus. It forgets the most important thing. So, I want to suggest that how we do this, or why we do it, is also tied up with, with how we do it. And I'm just going to list them from this passage. Number one, we preach good news to the poor. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because He makes me feel good, because He gives me power, because He provides me with money, because He heals my sicknesses. That's not what it says. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. So you get on the bus and you see the people with the glazed eyes who are looking for their next fix and you don't think scum. You don't think wasters. You think, I've got good news for you. You see the people in the street looking utterly miserable. You say, I've got good news for you. You see, as uh, we came down today, uh, this evening, a man staggering across the road, lucky not to be hit. And you look at him and you say, I've actually got good news for you. And somehow, that's what we aim to do. To, we preach good news to the poor. Secondly, bind up the brokenhearted. He sent, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Brokenhearted. Our society is absolutely full of brokenness. People whose marriages are broken. People whose relationships are broken. People whose jobs are broken. People whose bodies are broken. People whose minds have been broken. People who are shattered in every single way. And the Lord doesn't say, well, I sent you so that you could cozy up in a nice wee group and, and wait till I come back. He says, I sent you because I want you to bind up the brokenhearted. Thirdly, freedom for the captives and release from darkness. I thought it was a delicious irony, coincidence, inverted commas, that when the deacon's court discussed this meeting, we'd also invited Bob Aykroyd. We didn't know the two things were going to be together. We'd invited Bob Aykroyd to come and speak to us about his prison ministry. And if you were there that Wednesday night, you'd have to have had a heart, a stone, not to be moved by the ministry that Bob, who is a free church minister in Edinburgh, He's an American PhD, and the ministry has in Socketon Prison to people who, as he says, in their lives, they're just all screwed up. And what a fantastic ministry he has, and it's the ministry of the Word. Fourthly, we have to proclaim God's favor and God's justice. This is not soft soap stuff. We are telling people there's a God who is just, and we are telling people there is a God who shows grace and favor. Fifthly, we comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve. That's what it's to be about, to comfort those who mourn and provide for those who grieve. You see, when we have a church that's surrounded with people just like us, what are we doing? We're just creating something in our own image, and we're wanting to exclude other people. It's quite hard, isn't it, when you're with people who, you know, you're with someone whose husband's just died, or when you're with people who are brokenhearted, and you think, oh, such misery, let me out of here. I just want something different. I want to be cheered up myself. And God says, no, I, I, I've called you into this group of people, and your, your job is to do what Jesus did, which is to comfort those who mourn. Comfort and help those who grieve. Don't shut them out. Don't exclude them. Number six, bring beauty, gladness, and praise. 
to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise. Also in verse 7, it says there, instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance, and they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. This place should be a place of beauty and gladness and praise. Not, I don't think particularly, it's not particularly saying the outward beauty, though that, that what's outward often reflects what is inward. But people should be aware of that beauty. Number seven, we are to be oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, the splendor of Jesus Christ. Where is Jesus Christ? Where is the witness to Jesus Christ? It is in His people. Oaks of righteousness, that strength and, and, and standing for Jesus Christ. No, weak and falling apart Christians who just disappear every time there's a hint of trouble. McShane, coming back to him, once said, my people's greatest need is my own holiness. Well, you know what? The greatest need in this city for the witness of Jesus Christ is your holiness. If you are a Christian, it's your holiness. The greatest need at your work tomorrow is your holiness because you come in with the Jesus badge and the Bible and all the rest of it, and then you behave like an idiot or you allow your selfishness to predominate. You've just wiped out the whole witness. You've wiped out the gospel. Why are people going to believe the gospel if you say you believe the gospel and it hasn't made any difference to your life? When the advert for the gospel that they get is Jesus makes me miserable, Jesus makes me crabbit, Jesus makes me greedy, Jesus makes me bad-tempered, because that's what they're seeing. So, holiness is not a self-centered, self-absorbed, cut-off thing. Holiness is something about how do we live in an ugly world as oaks of righteousness? How do we show the beauty of Jesus? We can only do it through holiness. Number eight, foreigners will work. Maybe this is a bit tenuous, I'm sorry, but verse 5, aliens will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. I think it's great that with this city that was crying out for a workforce, there have been Poles and Bulgarians and others who've come and worked here. I think it's hugely ironic that you hear people complaining, they've taken all our jobs, people who've never worked in their lives. So that really gets me. But I think it's great that people have come and worked. And you know what I think that's great that's occurred in this city, in the church as well, is that where you couldn't get Scottish people to stand up and, and, and serve the church, God is bringing in people from different countries. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And I honestly believe that that's something that has happened and will continue to happen here. Number nine, verse six, you will be called priests of the Lord. It's what we call every member ministry. First Peter chapter two, verse five, you are a kingdom of priests. Brian said it this morning. And I think maybe one or two people might have thought, oh, were you, were you a bit uncomfortable with that when he said the church is not about David? No, I'm not uncomfortable with it at all. If it wasn't the free church, I would have shouted out hallelujah. I should have shouted out hallelujah, Brian. I apologize. But it was, it's just absolutely spot on. Because all of us are ministers and priests in this church of Jesus Christ. But you know what that involves? That means commitment. And that's the hard thing. We are very, very good here at one thing. Maybe we're good at some other things. But lots and lots of people come into St. Peter's and they say, oh, I really like it. I like it's friendly and, you know, the teaching's okay and singing's sometimes okay. And, and you know, but it's, it's, it's great. We love coming. We love coming. We love coming. And what happens is we get people who come and they come for a while. 
And maybe they're a little bit enthusiastic, not massively over-enthusiastic, you know, not hands in the air, hallelujah, but just, you know, very nice to be here, that kind of thing. I know this is a great church, and I'm really getting a lot from it, and I'm really benefiting from it. But I notice this, that very often you'll find people who come and, you know, they last about six months or so, maybe a year. And what's going on there? It's not that they've suddenly noticed defects and faults in the church, which there are. There are many, many, many of them. But what's going on is that people realize, wait a minute, there's a commitment that's involved here that's actually very, very deep. It has to be every member ministry. And there are people who want the fruits of that, but they're not prepared to pay the price for it. And so you end up with this problem of possibly a minority of people doing all the work and other people waiting for things to be done. But that's not the way it is, or it's not the way it should be. You will be called priests of the Lord. And to be a church that's revived in that way, we need to have people say, okay, I'm in. You know, there are times when you're observing. There are times when you're looking. There are times when you're finding out. Absolutely. Don't say I'm in when you're not. But when you are in, you are really in. You're not, it's not like, I'm not saying it's like joining a cult. But we're not a supermarket. We are not a social club. We are not a rugby club. We're not a golf club. We are not a club at all. You want to join a club, go somewhere else. But you want to be involved in the work of the gospel, then you're welcome here, no matter who you are. Lastly, social justice. That's what verse 8 is about. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. We have to be concerned about that. And our building also will reflect that. We will never have a church, I hope, that screams out to people, look, we are wealthy. Go away, peasants. Or you're welcome to come in and have a look, but you're, you're not part of this. Ostentation is not part of the Christian church. And we should and we must be concerned about social justice. So those ten things, preaching good news to the poor, binding up the brokenhearted, freedom for the captives, proclaiming God's favor and God's justice, comforting those who mourn, bringing beauty and gladness and praise, being oaks of righteousness, foreigners working amongst us, every member ministry and social justice. That's a, a, a dream. That's a vision of what St. Peter's could and should be like. Now, I think personally we're making a big decision. And I don't think the decision is about the shape of the building. I think the decision is about the shape of the ministry that we are involved in. Let me explain. In 1992, when, and forgive me for being personal here, but when we came here, I do remember. I think of... Um, well, Donald McLeod and Bill Henry who kept this place going. And I think of, of Bill Henry just being so delighted when we first had more than, when we first had double figures, double digits at a prayer meeting. I can remember speaking to single digits in the service here. And God has blessed us bit by bit. There have been lots of ups and there have been lots of downs. But the question I have is just simply where are we going? Where are we now? Yes, it's great that St. Andrew's has been planted, and that's been fantastic. It was great to be up in St. Cyrus and to, to hear the enthusiasm this afternoon of what they hope to do next in Montrose. It's great that churches in Dundee, through uh, people like Jim Clark in Central Baptist, who's been a major figure in this, and David Scott and David Clark uh, and uh, Graham from Elam, 
working together and the church is working together. That's a fantastic thing. It's great that in St. Peter's there's youth work. It's great that you come down here sometimes on a Sunday and there's young people queuing up to go to a prayer breakfast and actually praying as well as eating, which is just fantastic. It's great that there's the seniors' fellowship and, and you go in and, and you see just a completely different... And to me, it's just a little flavor, a little taste of what might yet be. But you know, there's an enormous temptation that we face. In God's providence, I was coming back from um, St. Cyrus this afternoon. It was a bit late. And I was desperately trying not to speed because my license can't take any more. And uh, uh, the government, please don't go for mercy. So I thought, well, you know, I'm going to listen to a, a CD. I'll put something on. I put a CD on, and it was a CD that I'd burned for Annabelle from the dreaded Mark Driscoll uh, from about five years ago. And I loved it. It was a sermon about the church. And he was describing almost the same scenario that they had in Seattle where they'd grown to a certain stage and there were people within the church saying, it's enough. We like a small church. Why do we like a small church? We like a small church because we know people within it, because it's comfortable, because very often we choose churches which do get people like us in that church. And how do we cope with growth? I mean, how could we cope with growth in this church? We're all stowed out to the eyes with stuff to do. And what if new people start coming in and they start becoming Christians? You think about the hospitality we have to offer and the discipleship and all the other things. Because when people come in, they don't leave their baggage at the door. They bring in all their baggage. I love our friend Tom Courtney was with us last week. And he said, you know, just for once, I'd like some people to come into the church who just have carry-on baggage, not, not the full works. Well, most of us have the full works. We have the law. And ministry is really, really hard. God does not send in converted families who are all perfect super saints and millionaire tithers and, and elders already and things like that. God normally does not do that. Normally, people are saved out of darkness and roughness. And God works on people bit by bit by bit, and He works on people often through His people. And it means we have to be patient and it means it involves a tremendous sacrifice on our part. And I love what Driscoll said. He said to his congregation, imagine if we were like on the day of Pentecost, where you went from 120 to 3,000. How would you cope with that? You know, you say, right, here's 20 people for you to disciple. And you're going, what? No way. There's no way that we could disciple 20 people. After, the church after the day of Pentecost must have been amazing because you know, basically everyone was new. Have you ever gone into church? It, it's funny because you get someone, uh, I, I was laughing at Robert because he said, oh, he says, there's lots of people I don't recognize in the church. I've heard that, that sometimes, and you know, I've actually heard it as a complaint. People saying, I just don't know everyone in this church anymore. You should be shouting hallelujah that that's the case, unless you've just been really snobby and not speaking to people. Why? It should be great. You should say, no, hang on, wait, wait a minute. Are, are they new or are they not new? You don't know. Don't come and ask me because I probably won't know. Go and ask them and talk to them. You say, but that's all just like hard work. I've just got into this church. I've just got to know some people and now I can't work out who's new and, who's, and what's happening and, and so on. Well, if God is going to bless us and, and we have to change our attitude, it's not about becoming a mega church, but it is about seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. I love um, 
the phrase which talks about the glory of the latter days being greater than the former. I'm fed up of Protestants, evangelicals who come to this church and go, oh, wouldn't it have been great to be here in McShane's day? I'm going to say, you have no idea. People in McShane's day complained all the time about him, and he complained as well, and everything was hassled then. They kept saying, oh, wouldn't it have been great to be back in the Scottish Reformation? And at the Scottish Reformation, they go, wouldn't it have been great to be back in Augustine's day? And probably Augustine was saying, wouldn't it have been great to be back in Jerusalem? And I'll bet you in the New Testament church they were saying, oh, if only we'd been in King David's day. I mean, that's our nature. We always do that. Why do we think that just, well, it was back in McShane's day and there's St. McShane, and isn't that convenient for us to do because we can never reach that? Why don't we believe and think that God could do that now? If we want to see renewal and revival in the 21st century church, we need to learn from our past. And I think we do. We need great teaching we need good, precise, Christ-centered biblical theology. We need what we call orthopractice, the correct practice of that teaching. We need a concern for the whole city and not just our particular congregation. It will be the death nail of this congregation if people start saying, what's good for St. Peter's? What's good for St. Peter's? Let's focus on St. Peter's. Don't ever dare focus on St. Peter's, and don't ever dare ask me to focus on St. Peter's. What's St. Peter's? This was very, very close to being a block of flats in 1988. Now, it's not now, but it could very easily become that again. We need to focus on the gospel, and we focus on Jesus Christ, and we focus on the best way to communicate that gospel to people. We need a God-honoring worship, which remembers that without the Spirit, we have nothing. And then look, just finish with verses 9 to 11. Look at those wonderful, wonderful promises in verses 9 to 11. It's a people the Lord has blessed. It's a people who delight in the Lord. It's a people who are fully clothed in the garments of salvation and arrayed in a robe of righteousness. It's a people who are fertile, like the soil, the garden that causes seeds to grow, that when people come and they're in our midst and they're in our presence and they're in our worship and they hear the Word of God, that the Spirit of God is taking it and applying it to hearts that He is opening and eyes that He is opening. There's life, and there's growth, and there's righteousness, and there's praise. And you go through Isaiah 61 and take out all the the buzzwords and the good words and the things that you would want. And that's why we are doing it. I have no interest in this place as a building. Come the day of judgment, it's all gone anyway, and it will eventually fall down. And there are things that I would that I really like and I really love. I love the wee umbrella stands and I love the, the names at the ends of the pews and, and all that kind of stuff. But God forbid that we would ever keep this building as a monument to what God did in the past because we did not believe that God could or would do it in the present or the future. I've read all McShane's letters. They're kept in a library in Edinburgh. There's a myth that McShane's Bible is ruined by the tears that he has on it. It is a myth. But I tell you, the letters are full of emotion about visiting the sick and visiting the dying, especially young children, about lamenting the state of the church and the state of the elders and the state of the believers, about lamenting the fact that in his parish there were 4,000 people, as far as he was concerned, half of whom were lost and on their way to hell. And he agonized over it. He really did genuinely agonize over it. And I just think, what do I agonize over? 
I agonize over so many different things. And I see the churches. What are the churches agonizing over? We use the jargon. We use the language. We use, we use God and we use the Word of God. And you know, I actually think we abuse the Word of God to justify ourselves. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm tying this in with what Brian said this morning. God will not give His glory to anyone else. So if your concern is for yourself, and if your concern is for this group, and if your concern is for a denomination, please repent. Please repent. Don't put anything, even the church, in the place of Jesus. And think, and I need to do this all the time, I need to think, what does Jesus want? And how do we communicate that to people? This may be subjective, and it may be wrong, and I'll hold my hands up and you can assess it for yourself. Over the past few months, I feel that we are very, very close to something. Every Sunday, there are new people. A man this morning came in, going out the door, he spoke to me, said he was looking to find a church, but he was looking, an older man looking for God, really. Isn't that wonderful? God is bringing people in here to look for God. And that is what we want. That's what we long for. But if that is really going to happen, it means all hands on deck. It means everyone playing a part. It means everyone contributing. And it means all of us saying, this is not about me. It's not about us. It is about Jesus Christ. Somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, will you leave St. Peter's and will you go and start David Robertson Ministries because of this stupid Dawkins book, which is now doing my head in? And I said to them, if that ever happens, and I plead this with you as well, shoot me. Don't, don't allow, that would just, that, that's just so anathema to the gospel. It is about Jesus Christ. Why are we doing it? That's the answer. Let's pray.